This is On and Off Your Mat podcast, episode 58, Restorative Yoga and the Importance of Slowing Down. For this episode, I sat down with Judith Henson Lassiter. Judith has a PhD in East-West Psychology. She's a trained physical therapist and has been teaching yoga since 1971. She trains students and teaches throughout the United States as well as abroad. She is the co-founder of the Iyengar Yoga Institute in San Francisco and one of the founders of the Yoga Journal magazine. And she is the president of the California Yoga Teachers Association. She has written eight books, including her most recent one called Restore and Rebalance, Yoga for Deep Relaxation. As always, I really appreciate your support with this podcast. You can get access to more content, exclusive episode, tutorials, guided meditation, and much more as you become a premium member. Note that you can make a really big difference even with a small donation to help me cover production costs and just simply allow me to continue this podcast, which I love to do. If you'd like to support me in this, please visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat and become a member. And as a thank you, not only do you get access to all our past content, but new exclusive content every month. Okay, ready? Let's get to this episode of today with Judith. Hi, Judith. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Restorative yoga has been a really big part of my practice and it plays an important role in my health and in my well-being. So I'm very grateful and very honored that you're taking the time to speak with me today. For listeners that don't know you very well, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your yoga journey? Well, I started taking yoga classes in 1970 uh, as part of a job, part-time job I had in graduate school. It's at the YWYMCA. It was a student mm. YWYMCA, and we got to take. They had just started yoga classes, and we, as staff members, and I was part time staff member, but we were able to take the classes free. And I walked into that class thinking this is going to help me because I want to go dance again, and I fell in love with it. It was an experience of recognition rather than learning, and the whole. My whole life took a radical turn from that moment. I got up the next day, did what I remembered, and I began to read everything about it and everything about the practice of yoga. And when I say yoga, I don't just mean asana, but everything about the practice of yoga resonated with me. The asana, the pranayama, the meditation, the Sanskrit terms, the philosophy, everything Mm. felt like, ah, because I had been a dancer and loved to dance and move and I had grown up in a in an area of the country that's where everyone goes to church. And I love going to the church to church. And that whole spiritual part of me was very open. But I noticed that you could work for the church or give money to the church or pray, or but no one ever danced to God. And mm. I felt that when I pr- began to practice the asana which we did in a very slow, introspective, dark room. I felt it was a form of prayer. Yes. And that it, for me, was the missing link. So uh, I got up the next day after my first class and did what I remembered. And it's 
to say it's shaped my life is an extraordinary understatement. It is my life now. It's been my path since that day. Wow, that's incredible. I can totally feel it when you explain it. Thank you. Um, today I wanted to talk about restorative yoga in particular. And so can you explain what it is or what's special or different about that practice versus other styles of yoga? Well, I'll tell you, let me start with this. I'll tell you my definition of restorative yoga. Please. And notice I said my definition, not the definition. Mm -hmm. It's coming from my my location, my point of view, is that restorative yoga is the use of props to support the body in positions of comfort and ease to facilitate health and relaxation. And a secondary or wider sense of it is it provides us something that has, that has been until the modern era, whether you say that the er, let's say the urbanization, the urbanization of the world. So whatever date we think of, 1800, 1900, I mean, it's hard to say, mm -hmm. but restorative yoga implies something new and different, but it really is a return to the understanding of rest. Mm. Not that long ago, diaries show that people used to sleep 10 to 12 hours a day, not all at once. There was a Sabbath, so you didn't work on that day, mm -hmm. you know, to smaller or greater extent. There was, there still is in many uh, civilized countries, note the use of the word civilized, siestas. There was a tension in, in a bigger way to the rhythm of life, to the seasons. You didn't have strawberries in January. You know, you, mm -hmm. you, you ate, you harvested, you lived in harmony with the seasons. And that's the, the rhythm of the human race. And now, and in many, and through many avenues that I really like having strawberries, if I want strawberries <laughs> in January, um, I try not to eat them, but you understand my metaphor mm -hmm. I'm not putting down civilization and technology. I'm just saying that it has, it is such a new, incredibly new shape to our lives, to our very physical rhythms, and and to our thought processes and to our bodies. It's it's completely different. People were never sitting all day. Yeah, you know. Um, we went from this activity to that activity, and in fact, you could even look back to the beginnings and development of yoga thousands of years ago you didn't have to go to spinning class because it was a walking everyone walked everywhere mm, like mm -hmm. the asana was something else it wasn't your exercise it was your inner size it was a spiritual practice and now we use it as exercise in some ways because it is such a sedentary world we live in so Restorative yoga to me is really just remembering to be silent. Mm. Because in, rather, still. Remembering to be still every day. Just be still, not doing anything. Because when we're still, silence arises. 
And when silence arises, fear melts away. And when fear melts away, there's a space for compassion and empathy. And when we live from compassion in our choices as much as we can for self and others, there is a, an integration of our being that allows us to feel more joy, spontaneous gratitude, spontaneous joy in our lives. And it comes from the choice of being still. Hmm. Would you say it's a much more meditative practice than other form of asanas? Practices? I, I never like to compare hmm. levels of meditation because some of what we might call in quotes a meditative state to me have had nothing to do. Some have been in church. Some have been in, on the yoga mat or the meditation cushion, but others have been holding my newborn baby. Mm -hmm. And I could practically hear the angel singing, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, some have been sitting in the woods or watching the ocean or listening to Mozart yeah. and having to pull the car over to the side because I was so overcome by the beauty of that music. I mean, I don't want to compare meditation states of levels and all of that, but I will say it is so perfect. Restorative yoga is exactly the glove that fits the hand of today because it does so many things for us. First of all, we're all exhausted. Mm -hmm. So all the studies show that we don't get enough sleep or the quality of sleep is really disturbed. And It helps us just physically rest. And when you physically rest, a whole category of a whole waterfall of physiological events occur in the body, which are beneficial. There are no bad side effects. You know how you read a magazine mm -hmm. and you, uh, you see a drug advertised <laughs> and you turn the page in the fine print, you know? Is it full and page? It, yeah. Basically, it says... This medicine can cause anything, yeah. including death. <laughs> Basically yeah. what it says. Um, there are no, if you turn the page for an advertise, uh, look at an advertisement for restorative yoga and you turn the page, side effects, negative, zero. Mm -hmm. So we need it on a physical level, but it, we are not just physical beings. Mm. So it bleeds over. I mean, when you are relaxed, you are not anxious. You cannot be anxious and relaxed at the same time. And anxiety is the surface of fear. Mm -hmm. So we're all a little afraid. And today, in our present circumstances with uh, the coronavirus, there is a lot of anxiety and fear. Mm -hmm. And Fear is not a bad thing. I mean, it saves us from walking in front of a truck. Absolutely. I mean, we need to be afraid of some things. But the constancy of the nagging anxiety state compels us to choose behaviors and thoughts that do not help us. So 
When you are relaxed, you're not anxious. And when you're not anxious, you're more likely to make, say and do what you really want to do and make better choices in your life. Mm -hmm. So carving out 20 minutes a day to do nothing is probably one of the best things that you can do. Certainly now when all we have is time. Um, So uh, some of us. And it's hard for us to do. Mm -hmm. It's hard for us to let go of the need to do. So it's a very, I call it very advanced. The advanced, most advanced pose in yoga is Shavasana. I agree. (laughs) Yeah, totally. We'll come back to that in a second. I want to come back just a little deeper into those positive side effects and the benefits because a lot of the things you said I totally relate to. For me, it really helps with anxiety levels and like my natural tendency to worry or it helps me change my mood or my mood or my thoughts. Like if I feel like I'm about to, I'm spiraling out a little bit, it really like kind of stops the momentum of the thoughts. And it had a really big impact on my health because I suffer from chronic illness and chronic pain. And so that comes with chronic stress. And you talked about on how we are physically and mentally exhausted all the time. So what are some other, like if we would make that list of the positive side effects instead of the negative side effects, like the medication, is there research that show what it does or what are some of the known things that, you know, we can convince people (laughs) to go and practice today? Okay, but before we do that, yeah. I want to go back to you yes, and what you said, because mm-hmm. I'm talking to you and other people are eavesdropping, yes. <laughs> if you will. You said about worrying too much. Uh-huh. All right. Here's a wonderful saying about worrying. Worrying is praying for what you don't want. <laughs> yes. So that thought has helped me. Women women worry more than men. Mm-hmm. And women really can get into worrying. <laughs> so I want to give you that mantra. Worrying is praying for what I don't want. Let me pray for what I do want. Let me focus on what I do want. I love it. Thank you. So that's for you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was part, I have done, I've been an advisor on a number of National Institute of Health studies on Uh, restorative yoga and one of them was about the use of restorative yoga specifically for women experiencing hot flashes and the the, you know perimenopausal symptom Mm -hmm. of hot flashes or what I call your own private summer (laughs) and never heard uh, that before that's good (laughs) and uh you know you never study yoga with somebody who doesn't make you laugh (laughs) I mean all room full of people with their butt up in the air doing dog pose is not serious. Important, but, you know, not serious. We need, we need to laugh, especially now. Laughing is fabulous for I agree. us. All right. So I was part of this study. And what this, it's posted on my website, judithhansonlasseter.com. We'll link to it for sure. All right. Uh, it showed that when women did 45 minutes of restorative yoga three times a week, twice. Now I'm trying to remember if it was twice in class and once at home, or maybe it was once in a class. I didn't actually teach it. I just helped set up the protocol. Mm-hmm. 
one, yeah, I think it was one class a week and then twice at home. So probably didn't do all that uh, as much, but they supposed, supposedly did. So let's hope that they did. And what was found was fascinating. Some, there was a, a number of people who were, had, uh, questionable blood sugars that improved one person went off her insulin mm. um triglyceride levels which is a fat in the blood went down and ldls low density uh high uh, low density cholesterol mm-hmm. uh lipids that they, they went down as well and the doctors who were supervising this were so kind of amazed at it but don't they need to do, because aerobic exercise will help with that as well. Yes. Uh, but don't they have to do something else, like change their <laughs> diet or run around the track? Or, and they were a little perplexed at how lying over bolsters covered up with blankets in a darkened room was going to change it. But here's how I interpret it. Now, I'm a physical therapist, but I, I, I so I, I do have some medical background, but I like to think of it in this way, that The human body is always trying to reach homeostasis, which is like a ship that's just floating on the top of the water, Mm -hmm. just perfectly balanced. And it's always trying for balance. And every moment, all your your systems, your digestive system, your reproductive system, your immune system, your nervous system is all looking for that harmony so that the body in its movements, for example – can play like an orchestra. You know, if you have something wrong with your knee, you throw off the whole wind section of the orchestra Mm -hmm. in this metaphor because it it affects your hip joint and and your your lower back and the the way your whole vertebral column is is functioning and everything has to play perfectly at once. And so the body's trying to find that homeostasis, that evenness, that even keel, and stress is probably the most important cause of dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Disruptor. Disruptor. And whatever is with you, reducing your stress levels are going to change your biochemical picture, your mood, your attitude, your thoughts, your breathing, blah, blah. So, so what I believe is happens is when we get in that state, we can talk about the three stages of Shavasana. If you want to ask me about that later, Mm -hmm. um, is we get into that deep resting state. We take the metaphoric weight off the body and it now has its resources available for healing. So, you know, when you're sick, really sick, you just want to lie down in bed because you, we know instinctively, take, I have a certain amount of energy, I need to take the, the, the demands of movement. And if you've ever recovered from a major surgery or an accident or anything like that, you know that you can't believe how much energy it might take just to go downstairs and have dinner and go back upstairs. Mm-hmm. Like it takes, our daily life takes a ton of energy that we just take for granted. Mm-hmm. Getting up, getting dressed, taking a shower. Like yeah, some there's days, movement and there's also just the impact of gravity. Exactly. So it takes a lot of energy. So when we get into this deeply restful state, what my explanation to the, to the team was, think of taking a huge weight off your body. 
and then the immune system writes itself. The, re- the re- reproductive system can function more better. Your digestion, elimination, um, people's skin rashes get affected. I mean, some of the letters I've gotten over the years, mm. a lot of things shift for people, n- not because every yoga yoga teacher who knows about this says, well, what was the sequence? What were the poses? And I'm shaking my head. It's not that. It's the process of relaxing. Hmm. I mean, the, 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 you know, the sequencing is interesting and, you know, important. Hmm. But the point is taking the weight off, the metaphoric weight of stress off people fixes it. It, it, it allows the body to find its health back. Hmm. So, uh, so I also have, have taught for Dean Ornish. Dean Ornish has done a lot of work with heart disease. And uh, I've, I've taught in this program and a number of times. And when I, one time I went and he, you'll love this story. He, he came to the, to the yoga session. I was supposed to teach. Can you imagine a whole room full of people with heart disease? Mm-hmm. And now that is a fascinating room because you can just sense to see the manifestation of it. Like, mm. They would lie on the floor. They would look around, be impatient. I want to do what he's doing. Like, couldn't let go. Needed needed to be in control all the time. And this is fascinating. So he came and he took everyone's, he had a little machine, and he took a drop of blood from everyone, and he took their cholesterol levels. And then he did it after one hour of yoga. Not restorative. There was a rest, but just basic slow down, breathe, be present yoga, and a rest at the end. And some people's cholesterol levels dropped up to 50, five zero, wow. 50 points in one hour. Wow, that is fascinating. That is You know, incredible. you see a commercial on TV, drink, eat this oatmeal cereal and your cholesterol will drop two points in five months, you know? It's like, <laughs> and I'm not saying diet isn't important or that oatmeal is good. Don't hear that. Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was, because cholesterol is a measure of stress. It's not just a measure of other dysfunctions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. your body's mate your body makes cholesterol it is a natural substance it's not an enemy it's not a foreign thing that invades your body is it it's your body makes it every day and so there's something all internally going on with how you handle the world so and the funny part of this story is that he took mine before and after, and mine for teaching a whole room full of people with heart disease. Mine went up because it was stressful. <laughs> <laughs> so don't teach yoga. <laughs> it's too stressful. Were you more stressed because he was in the room, like testing no, the no, impact? I didn't no, know about that. He's a friend of mine. <laughs> oh, actually, he wasn't in the room. He just did it before and after because he was, mm. you know, super busy okay. doing his his thing. But uh, no, I wasn't nervous about him. But it was. Kind of a funny thing, wasn't it? Yeah, totally. And so if the sequence is not the key part, as you mentioned, and it's more that taking the weight of the stress off, how do we do that? Is it just by taking the time to slow down and to rest? Or is there like a, something to, well, yeah. If I had to, if I had to, uh, if I was in charge of the world, if I could find my, if I had a magic wand that I could wave. Yes, like, please, I please just, do that. I'd lost I've lost that magic wand. If I can find this magic wand, I would have people every day all over the world, every single human being lie down and put their feet up 
you know, their lower legs up like uh-huh. on their couch in a comfortable way and put some little support under their head, put a soft cloth over their eyes, put a blanket over them, set their, set their timer or ask someone to come in the room afterwards or whatever and have them stay there for 20 minutes. Start with some simple breathing mm-hmm. and then just lie there and do nothing. And this is such a radical, radical thing. Um, and I have a hint for people about it. May I give you that hint? Please. How to do that? No music. No talking. No recording. Nothing. You need to do this in a place where you feel safe and it's somewhat quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, not on the sidewalk or anything. <laughs> in a quiet place. And what will happen is something extraordinary. What will happen is you will notice that your mind is a drunken monkey. It's a great (laughs) metaphor. Oh, yes. Just doesn't want to be there. How long is this going to last? Did I set my iPhone? Is this happening? What's that smell? Why is this, you know, what am I going to do afterwards? What am I going to do for dinner? What am I going to do at work next week? I mean, the mind is not your friend. So, you cannot mentally say, okay, I'm going to make myself relax now. Damn it. Yeah. Shut up, mind. You, you can't, can't force yourself to relax. That's not a thing. Yeah, that's kind of a, an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. So what I so what I suggest that people do, however, is these few of these simple breaths, long, slow inhale, long, slow exhale. And then I suggest to them that what they do then is to pay attention to the sensations of breath. Now, you can do that right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm not talking about, after we take a few settling breaths, I'm not talking about manipulating the breathing. I'm talking about being aware of the sensations of breathing. Do it right now. Feel how when you breathe, you'll want to change it, but that's not what I want you to do. It doesn't matter if it's uneven or shallow or deep or whatever, but just feel how the ribs move, the skin of the back around the shoulder blades, the change of the pressure in the belly and inhale and exhale. Just pay attention to sensation. Let's pause for just a second while we all do that. Mm -hmm. Now, what you'll find when you focus instead of on your thoughts, you focus on sensation, is that you are in the radical present. Because every moment sensation is arising. And we block a lot of it out. We don't feel the weight when we're sitting in a chair on our legs and our pelvis, you know, we, we shut things out. And in fact, the, one of the major functions of a, of a healthy brain is to, is to be able to, to focus and to shut things out and not, not to hear the train going by because we're so focused on the book, you know, mm-hmm. someone has to call our name three times to get our <laughs> attention. And so part of what the brain does is shut things out, not just take it in. But uh, sensation always arises in the moment. And you know this is true because if you can remember yesterday that you barked your shins against the edge of the bed. So many beds now are so low. They have these low frames. It's easy to walk into them um, until you figure it out. Uh, 
you can remember that it hurt, but you cannot recreate the pain of yesterday. Mm-hmm. This is why women have more than one baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so, we forget about pain. Yeah. So I remember so clearly when I went into labor with my second child and third child, it happened. It was like, I, I couldn't quite remember what labor felt like. I remembered it was hard work. I mean, it's called labor for a reason. It's a metabolic equivalent of swimming like seven or eight miles. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I'd start to have the labor contractions and I would go, oh yeah, now I remember this. So sensation is a very powerful tool for bringing us into the present. And it's what I call a practice of bodyfulness instead of mindfulness. Because Mm. I don't know about you, mindfulness is a traditional and wonderful practice, but, but sometimes I find myself, when I sit on my cushion every morning to meditate, what I actually end up doing is watching myself not meditate. Yeah. Is they can become very heady. So for me and, and for, it's just really simple is to teach people to just lie there and feel what they just notice the sensation of the breath, because you don't have to do anything. It's more of a receptive practice. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. this because it's a lot of what I do in my own practice and what I teach, but I didn't have a word for it. And now <laughs> I love that idea of bodyfulness instead of mindfulness. Yeah, your mind loves to have a, a, a word for things. Yeah. Yes, my mind too. But that's bodyfulness is being aware of sensation. And this, you can see what I like about this is that you can take that skill into the world off the mat. Like when you're Someone starts to dis. Someone who lives in your ashram with you and may have your same last name, <laughs> your family, yeah. like they'll start to disagree with you about something, and you can just notice your stomach tightening up, yeah, your chest and that closing brings you into the your throat, yeah. mm-hmm. and then you you can come into the present moment. And when we're in the present moment, we have the opportunity to choose what we say or do. Yeah. And that's what we want to have. That is freedom. Mm-hmm. So the process of Shavasana to me, the re- deep relaxation, mm-hmm. minimum 20 minutes because physiologically it takes people about 15 minutes to relax if they're well rested. Uh, and so is that helps us begin to disidentify with thought. Mm-hmm. So when you lie there, you're in the sensation and you can see or experience, see, quote unquote, or be aware that you have thoughts, but you aren't thoughts. So I was teaching a workshop years ago, and there was a woman there. It was the first yoga she had ever done. I was so impressed that someone would sign up for a weekend workshop in mm. yoga and had never even done it before. This was her. It's pretty courageous. And she raised her hand, and she did what people often do, which she apologized first. She said, I'm sorry to ask this question. It's really a dumb question. You know, that apology thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I said, yeah, no, just ask the question. She said, what is the difference between thought and consciousness? That was not a stupid question. <laughs> and I started laughing, kind of giggling. And she thought I was laughing at her. And I'm saying, that is the the question of life. Yeah. Because when when we're able 
to disidentify from thought and and what do what I call rest on the golden couch of Vishnu, just be in our consciousness, then we have the only real freedom anyone can have. Mm. Because if you are at the mercy of your thoughts, you are never free. Mm-hmm. And so that this practice, not only does it rest the body, but it begins to give people the taste of disidentification. And that is so liberating. Because we are always going to have thoughts. The body, according to science, creates 60,000 thoughts a day. The, uh, the overwhelming number of them are unconscious. I, I've, I sometimes give people this exercise to write down your five most common thoughts. Mm-hmm. Mine are like, I wake up. When do I get to go back to sleep? <laughs> then the next one is, when do we eat? Like, I know. I was going to say that. <laughs> why did we eat? Why did I eat that? Yeah. What's next? <laughs> Why did I say, I mean, very rarely are my thoughts anything even approaching profound. Most of my thoughts are these repetitive, you know. Unconscious. How can I yeah. feel safe? You know, so we, it's, it's really something I do sometimes in courses. We get down to what, you know, like our primary thought is. And for me, it's like, how can I be safe? Mm. Because of imprinting from my childhood you know, the need to be safe. And when I, when I've understood that by observing my thoughts, then I'm not so much at the mercy of it. Yeah. And I realize that a lot of choices I make are about safety mm-hmm. and that these choices that I'm stuck in have nothing to do with the present moment. So I think Shabasana. Because a lot of people is, is useful because a lot of people cannot sit up in, in some kind of lotus or half lotus or necessarily even need to. Mm-hmm. If, if we can, can rest and enter that meditative state of watching the rising and falling of the thoughts like the clouds passing by and rest deeply, it's, it's a profound... Well, let me say it this way. It's the best 20 minutes of your day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I have three children, as I said. And um, when they were like, maybe one was still in high school, two were in college or whatever, about that age, getting up there. Um, they were all here one day. And I could tell because I opened the refrigerator. It was, near, it was always <laughs> in food. Uh, I used to hide food when I would go to the grocery store with my two sons, uh, two sons and daughter, and I would come back before I asked them to come downstairs and carry the groceries up. They took them up these heavy bags, two, two or three steps at a time. Up they went. I'm like, oh my god, to be young. But I would hide food in the garage until they had helped me because, like, if I bought a baguette, the boys would crack it in half and eat the whole, and eat the whole thing while they were carrying the groceries up. So mm-hmm. I would hide the baguette I wanted to give for dinner because I couldn't keep them fed. Um, but one day I was around and they looked at me and one of them said to me, mom, you are acting like a brat, <laughs> which was probably true. And they, one of them said to me, go upstairs to the yoga room and shavas yourself. Shavas, shavas yourself. It became a verb in our household to shavas. I'm going to shavas now. Don't bother me. Yeah, because it. it became, it just became such a, a clear thing. 
that what we need is what we need is less. Mm-hmm. We just need less. Is that um, ungripping of the thoughts part of the stages of Shavasana you mentioned before? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you. Mm. This is my opinion. Of course, everything I said on this talk is my opinion because all we have are opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the first stage of Shavasana is, is relaxation. So I don't conflate the idea of Shavasana, which Shava means corpse pose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you appear dead to the outside world. You're so inward. Your energy, your attention, and your physical stillness dictate a sense of Shava. Um, so I don't, I don't conflate those two terms. I think you have to relax first. You know, you lie down, you get your props how you want them. I've written two books on restorative yoga. There are pictures and the other people, and a lot of people teach it and practice it and can show you how to do this, but propping up really helps because it makes the body super comfortable. Because mm-hmm. if you're not comfortable, you can't relax. So just lying on a flat floor for most people won't do it. You need props. Mm-hmm. It's very important. So you're all propped up and you're, and you're lying down. It takes a few minutes to get the wiggles out. It's like trying to take a picture of three children under the age of 10. You have to let them do several pictures of wiggling and faces and, you know, silliness, and then they're ready to settle down. So we lie down on the floor, and then we want to move our left arm out a little bit and adjust the head, you know, and we're still noticing everything. And we start to phys- physiologically relax, which shows lower blood pressure, slowed respiratory rate, slowed heart rate. And the shifting starts to happen from the sympathetic nervous system, go, 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 into parasympathetic dominance. So we turn on, we activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the nervous system that says relax and mellow out. Mm -hmm. And, And that's when, and that turning point, which I want to allow in my classes at least 15 minutes for, but you're a professional relaxer. You can probably do it in seven, eight minutes. Maybe. I don't know. Depends on the day. And so we do relaxation. That's stage one. That's the precursor to Shavasana. And then once we've deeply relaxed, there's a shift. And that's when true Shavasana begins. And that stage two. Now that people describe in different ways. Like I feel like a, that I'm at the bottom of a well. Or when I when I make that shift, well, before I make that shift, I'm really aware of my arms and legs and my head and my trunk as mm-hmm. sort of separate parts of me. And then when I get into that parasympathetic dominance, I just have this sense, this unity of weight and heaviness in this being. Like I don't delineate arms and legs. I just yeah. feel heavy. You, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, sometimes I'll feel like there's not that definition that like limit of the body like I feel wider or bigger than where my body would actually physically end exactly I feel flatter Mm -hmm. and spread out and I feel like all the energy of my brain goes to the back of my skull Mm -hmm. and this is very eyes are your eyes are covered up you always cover your eyes because light is the most stimulating thing to the nervous system that there is Mm -hmm. that's how we evolved on a planet when it got light we got up Mm. so it, we're made that way we're very coordinated our our systems our rhythms our biochemistry is totally oriented around light and you might want to read this interesting book called why we sleep it really goes into depth about that okay but so what happens is not only so you're you're you become an introvert you're you're 
sucked inward. And your yoga listeners will know what I mean when I use the word pratyahara, that inward turning, that natural inward turning. And so how I know that I'm there, and I think this is fairly universal, is I lose ambition. Hmm. I don't feel the urge to get up, to move. And I lose, I lose my normal curiosity. Like if I hear, if I'm just lying on the couch kind of resting, and in the old days when we used to have answering machines, the phone would ring and I'd hear someone's voice in the other room. Yeah. And I'd go, oh God, you know, I really should get up. Oh, but I don't want to. I've been trying to reach her for two days. Oh God, what do I do? So now if I hear the phone ring, and if I heard the voice, I would just go, oh, there's her voice. It wouldn't draw me out. Nothing draws me out of myself at that moment. Mm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That's a pratyahara state. That, to me, is shavasana. So I want 15 minutes of the relaxation and at least five minutes in that state. Because I believe, and this is not based on science. This is my opinion. I believe that especially that five minutes is the place of the most healing. Mm. The mental soothing, the emotional quieting, the physical health, I believe you find it mostly in that last five minutes at least. So I, I'll do like a 30-minute shavasana, but I ask people to do 20 minutes because mm-hmm. it takes some time to settle, and then totally. I want them to find that place. Then there's a third state, which sometimes happens for me and sometimes doesn't, and I call it ashunya. A-S-H-U-N-Y-A. Shunya is emptiness and the prefix a is negating often in Sanskrit. So it means non-emptiness. So it doesn't mean it's em- you feel there's an emptiness and it doesn't mean there's a fullness. And it is a state that I know only when I come back from it. Mm. In other words, students have told me before I went somewhere that wasn't sleep. And it's a, it's sort of a quieting of the witness. There is no one to notice a shunya. So you can't say, oh, this is cool. I'm in a shunya. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not. Yeah, if you think I, that, you're not. It's, it's like the first time I went skiing many years ago when I was learning. You know, I started with the snowplow. And then, of course, I went to the parallel and I remember the first time that I was coming down the mountain. I'm sure it was a baby slope or whatever. And I was learning and I kind of got like the skis turning together, you know, with the t- tips of the skis. And then, and this rhythm of sh- sh- like leaning into the mountain and mm-hmm. flowing. And it was like the sun and this beautiful crystal blue sky and this crunch of the snow and me. And, I, and then I just, when I'm getting it, bam, I fell down. Because <laughs> I was the when second was you're like, I got it. When I was in the experience of it, just in it, there was not the thinking of it. Mm-hmm. And once I started trying to think it again, I fell down. It was laughing at myself. <laughs> That's very common in meditation as well. You're like, oh, I'm so quiet. And you're like, nope, I just <laughs> I just got out of it. <laughs> this is the, listen, this, don't trust your mind. This is the mind you trust. Do you remember... A few days, a few weeks, um, a few years ago, there was this big thing on the internet about whether a dress was brown or blue. Mm-hmm. You remember that? Yeah. 
that was one that was such a spiritual and wonderful thing to happen because it turns out that it depends on what kinds of cells you have in your retina yeah that you're going to see blue or brown i i have mi- i know that i have mixed ones i was told this an unusual retina because of my r- racial background but uh the mixed but uh the doctor told me that but i could see both i could see either one mm. Some people can do that. It depends. So, because we have both of those whatever cells. So, I loved it as a philosophical expression that how angry people <laughs> held on to being right. It's blue. No, it's brown. It's 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 all in your perception. Mm-hmm. And so, this is really what yoga as a whole is about. It's not clinging to what your mind tells you. Yes, my mind will tell me the dress is blue or yes, it tells me it's brown, but I can at least conceive of a world in which that is not true. Mm. And the more we could become the larger container, the more integrated we are, the less we suffer. And I kind of want to end with this one thought unless you have a pressing question. Go ahead. How much yoga should we do? Hmm. We should practice until we feel the spontaneous arising of gratitude. Not gratitude for anything. Pure gratitude. Because when we are in a state of gratitude... We cannot harm people. We cannot lie. We can harm ourselves. We can't lie. And we act from an entirely different space of this larger container. And that's really why we practice. Mm, yeah. That's a beautiful way to end it. <laughs> I do have a quote, though. Please. I have two quotes. Okay. But before I say my quotes, I want to express my appreciation to you Mm. for what you do by practicing your own practice helps me and the world. And I want to appreciate you for your work to help other people through your work to suffer less and be more happy. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you. Mm. You're welcome. So here's a quote. We think that life is strong and love is fragile. But really, it's the other way around. Life hangs by a thread and love holds the universe together. And this is one of my favorite quotes. It's a Judith quote. Because this is what we need right now in the world. We need to remember that truth. Nothing can destroy love, not time, not distance, not death, nothing. It is the strongest thing there is. And that's what the current situation is calling upon us to have love for ourselves and to love everyone else by separating ourselves from them, which goes against every instinct we have as human animals. Yeah. And then I want to say namaste. May we live like the lotus at home in the muddy water. Namaste.
Thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure and really an inspiring episode. And I'm sure it will really help listeners to push through that resistance of the challenging of letting go and welcoming rest in their life. So I'm really grateful. I I know you mentioned your website earlier, but just last time before, in case people don't get to the show notes, obviously I'll put all the link in there, but What's the best place for them to find you if they want to reach out? Actually, thank you for this. Uh, Actually, the best place to reach me is just www.judith.yoga because you can find my audio courses, my website, everything you want is just judith.yoga. Excellent. Guys, go check it out. Get the books. (laughs) It's really an important practice. I, I encourage you to... Include more of this in your life, especially now. Well, enjoy doing nothing. (laughs) Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Have a beautiful day. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you listen. And if you wanted to continue, don't forget, please support me. Visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat, donate or become a VIP member or premium member and get your hands on all our exclusive content. Check out the show notes to find more info about our guest of today, Judith Henson Lassiter, or my top five biggest takeaways from this episode. Before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to Alexander Saba working in the background, creating music, editing and mastering this podcast. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time.